engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. This is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with Eva Higginbotham. This week, an even gloomier outlook on climate change. The latest IPCC report confirms we need to drastically reduce emissions. Also, a new carnivorous plant discovery, the first for 20 years. And we're asking why COVID vaccine uptake is lagging among the under 30s in the UK. And speaking of COVID... Long COVID. We're 18 months into the pandemic and there are thousands of people with long-term health consequences of having caught the infection. Stay tuned to find out who's most at risk and what's making this happen and what we can do about it. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, as wildfires have wreaked havoc in Greece and California, off the back of recent floods in parts of Europe and a heatwave across the western half of North America that saw temperatures touch 50 degrees Celsius in Canada, the message this week from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was extremely chilling. Climate change is here, it's permanent and we caused it. The stark warning from the world's leading scientists. Within two decades, temperatures are on course to rise by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, bringing heat waves, droughts and floods. The world listened, but didn't hear. The world listened, but it didn't act strongly enough. And as a result, climate change is a problem that is here now. Nobody's safe and it's getting worse faster. Well, Imperial College's Yuri Rogo is one of the authors of the new report that spawned those sorts of headlines. And I wanted to know what has changed since the last such update was published. That was back in about 2015. And how reports like this might or might not be able to help us to stimulate action to combat what many are now regarding as a full-blown climate crisis. For the first time, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change now states unequivocally that our human actions are responsible for the change that we are seeing around us. The report also states that to stop global warming, we have to bring down our global emissions to zero. These two pieces of information really tells us where we are today, but also what we should be doing. It comes across as quite a sort of slap on the wrist slash finger waggling, we told you so, and now we're even more sure. This, this outing of the report. The message hasn't greatly changed, but the tone of the language and the certainty certainly has. Well, these reports from the IPCC, we publish them every five to seven years. So as climate change has been progressing, the report can say things with greater urgency, can show greater impacts and so on. At the same time, the report also has made great improvements in what we scientifically understand and Attributing what we see to human activity is one of those great advances of this report. Words like unequivocal are really very powerful. So what has changed in the last five years that means that you can now say pretty much unequivocally, this is because of what we're doing? Whereas five years ago, there was a lot more uncertainty around the wording. The reason for this is really twofold. First of all, we have seen more climate change, more warming. 
And so the signal of what we're seeing is coming out of the noise, unprecedented extreme events that could not have happened if not for climate change. The second reason is that also methods and uh, computer power have increased a lot. And these are necessary for, uh, for the calculations to be able to make these statements. And when we say IPCC, it's often not reported as to exactly what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is, who's on that panel and how these reports get put together. So can you explain it for me? I'm an author for the IPCC, but the IPCC are 195 countries, all the countries pretty much of the United Nations. And these 195 countries, they come together, they commission reports, and then the scientific community, we are producing those reports following a very rigorous, transparent, and open process that runs over many years. For example, this report, we prepared roughly three years for it. We answered more than 70,000 review comments. The report then gets signed off sentence by sentence by those 195 countries, which makes these reports very powerful in the political arena. Yes, indeed, because obviously having buy-in from all those different member countries means that it's relevant to a global community. But is, is not part of the problem. There are some countries that are accounting for a disproportionate amount of emission and the report doesn't point fingers. It's very smooth in its language around human activity. Yeah, that is one aspect of IPCC reports. IPCC reports have to be policy relevant, but can't be policy prescriptive. That means that there is very little finger pointing going on. For reports that are more pointing fingers, there are other organizations, uh, including NGOs, that do a much better job at this. But there is some sort of facility being made for legal action now, isn't there? around this so that countries can be brought to the table and their behaviour in terms of emissions and so on can actually attract some legislative manipulation? Absolutely. There are a few avenues where, where this can happen. First and foremost, actually, the report will be feeding into political discussions. For example, in the context of the climate summit at the end of this year in Glasgow, it's not legal action, but it's definitely diplomatic action of countries putting pressure on each other. But then indeed, as you say, this report really provides a very good basis for legal action. First, we can now attribute changes that we see around us to human activity. So we can really say also in a court, human activities are responsible for much of the damage that we are seeing. And on the other hand, as the report also shows what needs to be done to limit warming to safe levels, this also provides a really interesting puzzle piece for legal action. When you say how much carbon dioxide we can still emit, that answer isn't very much, though, is it? We don't have very long before we really have run out of runway. Yes, indeed. If we want to limit our warming to levels that are considered safe, and that is kind of the iconic 1.5 degrees of global warming. The carbon budget that we can still emit is, is very small. It's, and I'm now going to throw around a few numbers, 500 billion tons of CO2. And putting that in context, on an annual basis, we emit around 40 billion tons. So that means uh, in, in slightly a bit more than 10 years, this budget 
would be used up if we don't decrease our emissions uh, from today. So are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm a typical optimist. At the same time, I'm a realist. While I know that it is necessary, while I know that we can do it, and for example, the great efforts that have been done during the COVID pandemic show that if the need is there and if the will is there, change can be implemented very rapidly. But I'm also a realist, and uh, in my own research, I research uh, where emissions are heading based on the promises that governments have made today. And uh, that really shows that we are not on track to limit our global warming to safe levels at all. By mid-century, we would be well beyond all the global goals that we have set ourselves. So I also see that side of the coin. So no more time to delay. That's the message, isn't it? Thanks very much to Yuri Rogo, who's one of the authors of the latest IPCC climate change reports. To plants now. And Thomas Givnish from the University of Wisconsin-Madison recalls playing in the pine barrens of New Jersey as a child amidst an off-white yellow flower perched atop a long, green, hairy, sticky-looking stem. Decades later, the previously documented Triantha occidentalis has been redesignated as a carnivorous plant, the first to be found in over 20 years. As Harry Lewis reports, this particular species has stood innocuously next to roadsides and gone unnoticed until now. Uh, it has a very unusual kind of trap mechanism. Its um, flower stalks are sticky. And this uh, runs counter uh, to theory, actually to a theory I devised a number of years ago, that carnivorous plants should not place their traps next to their flowers lest they eat their pollinators. Uh, but it turns out that uh, this plant, Triantha, found in Western North America, is able to do this because its tentacles, its uh, glandular hairs, uh, are, have a relatively weak glue to them, so they can catch gnats and midges but uh, they're too weak to uh, immobilize uh, the larger, much stronger uh, bees and butterflies that act as pollinators. How unique is it to find a carnivorous plant in this day and age? It's quite unusual, but not unheard of. And um, it's uh, only the 12th lineage in which carnivory has been discovered in plants. Now, by lineage, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, all the uh, plants descended from some common ancestors. Carnivorous plants, they're quite specific to where they grow in, in terms of location. So what is the advantage of being carnivorous? Well, that's an excellent question. All carnivorous plants have costs, right? They have to um, construct uh, digestive enzymes or lures like uh, odors or, or showy uh, leaves to trap prey. So there has to be some countervailing advantage to those energetic costs. And I argued that um, uh, the most likely advantage would be an increment to photosynthesis. Photosynthesis in sunlight is limited by uh, nitrogen and sometimes phosphorus. And so carnivory should evolve when the energetic benefits through uh, enhanced photosynthesis exceed the costs of carnivory. And the conclusion is simply put, that carnivory should evolve when nutrients and nutrients alone are limiting. And when discovering this new lineage, I'm sort of imagining you wading through bogs and rainforests in order to find it. 
Was that the case? No, uh, not at all. This story began with Sean Graham, who um, had been studying the uh, relationships among plants related to uh, the philodendron family, the, the aroids. And he found that a particular gene in DHF had been lost. Sean recognized that uh, a number of carnivorous plants have lost that gene for reasons we don't understand even to this day. So he said, oh, that's interesting. And he also recognized Tarantha has these sticky inflorescent stems and thought, hey, maybe this is a new carnivorous plant. So he interested one of his star graduate students, Kinchi Lin, in the project. And uh, Kinchi designed an elegant set of experiments in order to test whether the plant was indeed carnivorous. He first of all grew up fruit flies on a medium that included a lot of heavy nitrogen. So it comes in, in two stable isotopes, the common one being N14 and a somewhat heavier one being N15. And he applied them to the leaves of the plant and to the tentacles. And he was able to show 64% of the uh, nitrogen uh, in the plant was coming from prey. Which is really high, isn't it, Tom? Yes, for a plant to be recognized as being carnivorous, you have to demonstrate two things. First, that the plant is able to take up mineral nutrients from dead animal bodies. And secondly, that it has some unequivocal adaptation for prey attraction or prey capture or prey digestion. And in the case of the bog asphodel, the ability to take up nutrients from the prey. Finally, he was able to show that it had specialized adaptations for prey digestion. So it turns out that the leaf hairs secrete phosphatase, which is a digestive enzyme that is found in many but not all carnivorous plants. Amazing stuff there. And maybe there are more of them out there too, just hidden in plain sight. Those findings were published in the journal PNAS. From baffling British weather sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. And meanwhile, here on The Naked Scientist, long COVID is going under the microscope. I still have a real problem with sort of exercise intolerance. I, a few steps and I'm gasping for air. If I try and walk any distance, I just, my sort of blood oxygen levels drop. And again, I'm sort of struggling to breathe. I, I also have problems regulating my heart rate and blood pressure. So I get quite dizzy if I'm standing for too long or if I get up too quickly, I black out completely. My vision's still pretty appalling. and. There's a lot I can't do. More on that later. But first, although we're now all used to looking at map apps on our phones to navigate our way around, in the absence of technology and written maps, humans use route-based navigation. That is, we go the way we know will get us to where we want to be, even if it's not the shortest way, using a map laid down in our brains. Now, researchers at Oxford Brooks and the University of Texas Austin have shown that black howler monkeys, thought of previously as having low cognitive abilities, appear to use the same mental map strategy that we do. I heard how from lead author and howler monkey impersonator Miguel de Guinea. 
Black Hole monkeys use routes to navigate that resemble the navigation system of humans to a level that we have not seen ever before. So for, for kind of a year, I was waking up every almost every day at four in the morning to follow these guys. We were following them 12 hours a day. Uh, we would get to the field, find the tree where they were. Sometimes they would howl in the morning. So howler monkeys howl, <laughs> and which means that they engage in very loud vocalizations, uh, which you can hear one kilometer away. Um, can you, so can you do an impression in, of one? How do they sound? Well, I, I think I can do something like that after hearing them so often. It's something like... It sounds terrifying! <laughs> it's kind of terrifying. It resembles a lot like jaguars. It's, it's pretty... It's very uh, intense when you hear it in the jungle the first time. So, yeah, so then we would, we would find them in this tree and then we would follow them for the rest of the day. They would be foraging, socializing, having encounters with other groups. Uh, and then they would go to their sleeping tree and we would go back uh, home to the research house and go back again for the sunrise the next morning. So these monkeys wouldn't travel long, long distances, but like maybe three in between 300 meters and maybe 800 meters. The thing is that this area is very sloping. It used to be a Mayan city, and on top of this ancient, ancient Mayan city, there is a forest. So there are several changes in elevation that we have to deal with when we are following the monkeys. They, they navigate in the canopy, but we move in the ground. So we are all the time going up and down cascades, uh, Mayan temples. So it's, it's sometimes very daunting, uh, very challenging to get there. And what did you find? We found that they do rely on routes very often. It was very clear since the beginning that they were using the same routes. But the thing is that they do manage to move very efficiently in the in the forest. So when I was analyzing the data, I was like, this is not just it. It's not that they're using these routes. So I was like, there is something going on with the structure of these routes because they navigate in a very straight line despite of like using pre-established routes. Then what I decided to do is to say, okay, so how would a monkey move it if it had no cognition. And I simulated movements using an algorithm to just compare. And then what we found is that the observed monkeys, they uh, develop this set of routes that are highly efficient. So it allows you to navigate in between any, any location in the area that is highly relevant uh, to any other location using a very short path. So they they do develop this set of routes that are highly efficient, and that's why it seems to me as if they were navigating in a metro. So they just had the metro network in their in their minds, and they just use it to navigate. That was Miguel de Guinea from Oxford Brookes University, and that paper has just been published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Now, the UK's vaccination programme against coronavirus has arguably been one of our successes for the pandemic. And very high vaccination rates are what has likely led to the dramatic turnaround in COVID fatalities that we've seen. But as younger age groups have gradually become eligible to get vaccinated, that uptake has slowed down a bit. And at the moment, as many as three in 10 people under the age of 30 have still not received their first dose of vaccine. That's about three million people. In other words, a significant number to fuel a big outbreak. Sally LePage asked University of Edinburgh Public Health Specialist Linda Bold 
why this might be happening. If you look at the 18 to 29-year-olds in the UK, around 72% of them have had a first dose of the vaccine. And you can see that in people in their 30s, it's significantly higher. We're looking at about, I think, 80% at the moment and higher than that in people in their 40s. What I would say, though, there are some caveats around that. Although there are a number of 18 to 29-year-olds who will have been eligible for quite some time because they've got an underlying health condition, there are others who only relatively recently have become eligible earlier in the summer, for example. So it's natural that they would have a slower uptake. But what I would say is striking, and I've been looking at the figures very closely over the last, for example, month, the rate of increase is slower than it has been for older age groups. And that does cause me some concern. Why do you think uptake has been so low in younger groups if it's not just a matter of there hasn't been enough time? First point is we could do better, but let's face it, over 70% with the first dose is not bad. So credit to the young people who've come forward. That's absolutely brilliant. Main reasons for not taking up the vaccine are the first one would be convenience and the fact that they may not be in their locality, know where they can go, or the vaccines may not be as available to them. Especially as I imagine more young people are likely to move house more often. Certainly I was. So having to change GP surgeries all the time. Is another thing on top of that. Well, that's right. And with students, with university and college students, that's a big issue. You know, registering with another GP. The other point, which is probably the main one, is that young people don't see COVID-19 as a direct threat to their health. You're right. I mean, as as a 29-year-old, I remember a good period in the spring and early summer where everything was opening up. We were told non-essential retail, that's safe for you. Workplaces, pubs, museums, even small gatherings inside, it's all safe, even though I hadn't even been offered my first dose of the vaccine because of my age. If it was safe then, why do young people need the vaccine now? Well, that's the thing. I think the communication has been mixed. The key thing is that we know that COVID is still in the community and it was there at that time when other things were opening up. But the comms has been complex and to try and communicate relative risks by age is is quite a difficult thing to do. And perhaps we forgot that young people needed to be protected as well. The other thing from a scientific point of view is long COVID, the evidence on that is accumulating all the time. And we now know that younger people are also at risk of long COVID, not as much as older groups, but they are. And then the third point is younger people are more common consumers of social media than particularly much older groups. And that's where a lot of misinformation about vaccines exists. And I think young people may be seeing more of that misinformation than older groups. Now, obviously, COVID isn't the only public health issue that has ever existed. Have there been any successful initiatives in changing public behaviour in past public health issues? Oh, there's loads and loads. Reducing rates of smoking in young people, where people have come forward and recognised that reducing smoking in indoor public places or encouraging people to take up the offer of a quit campaign, those are things that we can do. So behaviour change, generally, I think has some basic principles. Clear evidence-based communication, accessible, affordable interventions, whether that be a vaccine or a treatment or a counselling option, whatever, and also changing social norms. So I think there's things we can learn from other aspects of public health. And then the final one I would say, which is a bit of an outlier for vaccines, is even incentivizing people uh, to come forward to take up a public health intervention is something we've done, actually tried and tested. Yeah, you mentioned these vaccine incentives. We've seen recently things like discounts on takeaways and taxi services. But there are also 
I suppose, non-vaccine disincentive. So making it harder for people who aren't vaccinated with things like restriction on travel. Which tends to work better, carrot methods or stick methods when it comes to changing public behaviour? Well, it's very interesting because there's at least one study on this for COVID vaccines. And actually, interestingly, in that study from Germany, for younger groups, they were more motivated by not being able to do things, not go to a pub, not being able to go on holiday, etc. if they were not vaccinated, than by, um, you know, winning a prize or having the option of an incentive. And internationally, the need for vaccine certification is something we're just going to have to live with for travel. And I think for young people, actually, that is a motivating feature, whether we do it much to get into a nightclub or other aspects of social and economic life. Um, I'm not so keen, but I, I do think it has its place. And we're going to hear a bit more about some of those long COVID effects that Linda was talking about later on in the programme. That's coming up next. Linda Bold there. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. And for the rest of the programme this week, we are going to look at long COVID. These are long-term symptoms that some people describe in the aftermath of an acute coronavirus infection. They include breathlessness and extreme fatigue, heart problems, cognitive issues, diabetes, and some people have even developed neurological syndromes. Freya Jeffcott is one such person. Now, she's a medical anthropologist at the University of Cambridge who, before last year, was a daily jogger who regularly deployed with Doctors Without Borders all over the world investigating disease outbreaks. My story probably started uh, in April 2020. I've been sick for about 16 months now and I just had what I think was probably quite normal, moderately bad COVID. And then I thought I recovered But actually, since then, I've just been hit by these big waves of different symptoms that have been really quite debilitating. I still have a real problem with sort of exercise intolerance. A few steps and I'm gasping for air. If I try and walk any distance, I just my sort of blood oxygen levels drop. And again, I'm sort of struggling to breathe. I I also have problems regulating my heart rate and blood pressure. So I get quite dizzy if I'm standing for too long or if I get up too quickly, I black out completely. My vision's still pretty appalling and there's a lot I can't do. I don't think I will be able to do field work for research again or deploy with Doctors Without Borders. I don't think I'll be able to drive again. And whilst I can work, which I'm very lucky that I didn't have a sort of more physical job, it's different. It's more of a struggle that I'm getting through. So this week we're speaking to the experts to try and unpick what the latest science says about this condition and what research is ongoing to try and help people like Freya. First up, what are the latest numbers on who is getting long COVID and what the most common symptoms actually are? It turns out that that is a pretty complicated question, with multiple concurrent surveys using different methods leading to different numbers. Here to take us through it is Lawrence Young from the University of Warwick. So, Lawrence, how many people are thought to be suffering from long COVID? Well, it looks like from different studies now, it's around a million people in total, including adults and youngsters, 
So as you said, this is complicated because the diagnosis is still a little vague in pinning down exactly the different types of long COVID, but it looks like something like 10 to 30% of adults can end up with this, this disease. It's such an incredibly high number. How are those numbers being acquired? How are we measuring how many people? Well, there are lots of different studies going on. There's a study, the REACT study that we hear about, which has looked at the prevalence of uh, of infection and long-term consequences. There are studies using the Zoe app, which where people are self-reporting. Those are often complicated because obviously that that could be a bit biased if you're self-reporting. And then we have the Office of National Statistics data. So there's lots of different data coming in. And that's why we have such a broad range of percentages here, because we're still not exactly sure how best to define long COVID and therefore how many people are suffering. But it's clearly a lot of people. And what do those data say about who is most likely to suffer from long COVID? Well, whilst, whilst a lot of this is a, it suggests that you don't need to be symptomatic, you don't need to be really sick to develop long COVID, it's quite clear that if you experience five symptoms or more during the first week in which you're sick, then you're more likely to get long COVID. It is associated with increasing age. It's associated with obesity, with body mass index. And it's interestingly found more commonly in women than in men. And what are the most common symptoms of long COVID? Is it often sort of a continuation of what you had in the acute phase or are people developing symptoms that they never had before? Yeah, I think I think some of it is a continuation and there is a category of long COVID, which clearly is defined by continuing symptoms from the symptoms that you develop during the acute phase. But most of this is, is, is stuff that just lingers and it actually fluctuates a lot, too. So it's defined by extreme tiredness and fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain, joint pain. This thing called brain fog, which seems to be a very common feature of long COVID, where you have problems with memory and concentration, uh, insomnia, heart palpitation. So I think this, this is a range of symptoms which makes defining long COVID quite challenging. And of course, we're still going through it. People like Freya are still sick 16 months later. But do we have any idea of how long most people might experience long COVID for? How long does it last? Yeah, well, that's something that, again, where the data is looking quite interesting. The data from the from the Office of National Statistics, which estimated about a million people reporting uh, COVID symptoms for more than four weeks, also found that something like 385,000 folk had COVID-19 for at least a year. And that's the data that came through in June of this year. So it's likely that quite a significant number of people will be having one or more of these symptoms for a long time. And, and what about other viral infections? Because we hear of things like chronic fatigue syndrome, that can be set off by things like glandular fever, as far as I'm aware. Is this really special to COVID or is this something more general to other viral infections too? I think there is a there is an element of, of, of something that is common in sort of post-viral syndromes. And this is where I think it gets very complicated in terms of diagnosis, because I think it's quite clear that we're not looking at a single disease. We're probably looking at multiple diseases, some of them associated with the severe infection and lung problems that people have if they've sadly had to go into intensive care. But a lot of the fatigue-related illnesses are very reminiscent of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so I think we and others are, are, are looking at that in detail now to see whether or not there is something very specific about SARS-CoV-2 or whether this is a general feature that we see with chronic fatigue. 
Thank you very much for making that so clear. Thank you. That was Lawrence Young from the University of Warwick. So that is what the current data are saying about who's getting long COVID and how many of them there are. But the next important question is, of course, how? What is the mechanism behind why some people are getting these syndromes? Well, that's a question that Yale immunologist Akiko Iwasaki has been pursuing. And she's with us. So, Akiko, what do you think is going on? Right. So there are a couple of theories that are now posed to explain long COVID. One is a lingering virus or a viral reservoir that persists in a person that can stimulate chronic inflammation. The other possibility is autoimmunity, that uh, even a mild viral infection can trigger autoimmunity, which have long-term consequences. So when you say long-term infection, this would be that although the virus has, say, disappeared from the lungs, it could be loitering somewhere else in the body, and it's the, the physical presence of it turning over gently and indolently somewhere that's, that's continuing to, to drive the immune system and cause some of the symptoms that people describe. Right. So that's one of the theories of lingering virus uh, or viral reservoir. And data from studies have already shown that the gastrointestinal tract of people who recovered or who had COVID months ago uh, still contain viral antigen and RNA. And so it's possible that a reservoir like that, where we cannot capture the virus from the nasopharyngeal swabs or saliva, may still exist somewhere. The surprising thing, though, is that it's not everybody. Why would that happen to just a magic 10 to 20 percent of people who catch the infection and the rest would get rid of it? Right. That's a critical question that many of us are trying to answer. Some of it has to do with the demographics that Lawrence just discussed, which has to do with, you know, women of middle age or ages between 30s, 40s, 50s. These are also the age group that is at high risk for developing autoimmune diseases. And so if COVID is triggering autoimmune diseases, it might explain why that's predominant in these, um, this age group of women. And when you say autoimmune disease, this is the immune system being persuaded to turn on itself. Instead of defending us, it starts attacking us. Why would coronavirus infection do that, though? Well, we don't really know why it would do that. Um, we've certainly seen evidence of autoantibodies that develop in COVID patients. And there are many theories out there as to why a viral infection can trigger autoimmunity. But there's a lot of autoimmune diseases that have known link to a viral infection. How exactly viral infection induces autoimmunity is still unclear. You therefore have two theories. One is that the, the virus loiters for longer than you'd like in some people. The other is that it does nasty things to the immune system, or it could be both, I suppose, couldn't it, going on at the same time. How are you trying to find out which it is? Right, so long COVID is likely a collection of distinct diseases, and we're trying to understand the underlying cause by casting a wide net, looking at immune phenotype and metabolic phenotype in people with long COVID. And so we are trying to understand how the immune response differ between long COVID patients versus those who had acute COVID but recovered completely. And does it? Well, <laughs> so far, um, the evidence is still very premature, but we are seeing some distinct differences in people who have long COVID versus acute COVID. And studies have already come out showing presence of autoantibody, different cytokines that are elevated activation of different cell types. So we are getting a early glimpse into what this, how the long COVID is being driven. 
And do those changes that you're detecting, these antibodies that recognise us rather than foreign invaders, inflammatory signals and so on, do they actually marry up with the sorts of symptoms that people are describing? Do you see more of those sorts of things in people with worse symptoms? Do you see those things disappear as people's symptoms improve? And how do you dissect away what's cause and what's effect? Because could it not be that if someone's got problems in a certain part of their body that's making the symptoms, they get the antibodies because of that, not causing that? Right. So the cause and effect issue is a little bit more difficult to untangle. Currently, a lot of the evidence is correlative. Um, But we are seeing symptoms that may be consistent with the type of autoreactive reactions that people are making. For instance, if a person is making antibodies against, you know, cells of the brain, that could result in inflammation within the brain that can trigger fatigue or brain fog or memory loss. A question which is surfacing a lot, and I think with very good reason, and it's, it's even as an argument being used to justify why we should target vaccination at certain groups, is vaccination could reduce your risk of long COVID. Would you agree? Vaccination in general will reduce the risk for getting infection as well as subsequent diseases. So definitely, you know, it's very important that we all get vaccinated. However, vaccination may not guarantee a person from not getting long COVID. In fact, there are some you know, evidence that's uh, arising that shows that people who are fully vaccinated can get long COVID from breakthrough infections. The other thing, just since we're talking about vaccines, there have been a number of people saying, I've had the vaccine, my long COVID got better. What do you think? Yes, so there are a couple of groups, uh, mostly patient-led groups, that are reporting about 40% of long haulers who get the vaccine feel better, whereas about 15% feel worse after the vaccine. And so we think this is a very interesting phenomenon and that the immune response to the vaccine may be causing this difference in the symptoms. We're actually starting a study where we are collecting blood and saliva from long haulers before and after the vaccine to try to understand how immune changes that result from vaccination might contribute to symptom improvement or worsening. Do you think it's just the coronavirus vaccine or is it the immune modulation that's conferred by having a vaccine? And so it could be a flu jab that would achieve much the same outcome. So that all depends on which of the two hypotheses are true. So if the viral reservoir is what's causing long COVID, then it has to be a specific coronavirus vaccine in order to eliminate that reservoir. Whereas if it's autoimmune disease, any vaccine that could trigger the right kinds of cytokines may be helpful. And in fact, I have heard from people who've gotten other types of vaccines and also feeling better. So we have yet to discover which of these hypotheses are true, but um, there are some early signs of indicating that it could be the autoimmune disease. Well, we'll have to watch this space and you can come back and tell us what you find when you've had a chance to study them. Akiko, thank you very much. That's Akiko Iwasaki. She is at Yale University. This week, we are unpicking the science of long COVID. Coming up, we'll be asking, what's the best way to manage and treat it?
But before that, one of the difficulties in studying and treating long COVID is that we don't currently have a very definitive way to diagnose it. And without a diagnostic test, the condition becomes much harder to manage or study. Danny Altman is an immunologist from Imperial College London, where he's been looking to see if there are any similarities in the blood of people suffering from long COVID. So, Danny, tell me, what exactly have you been looking for in people's blood? Well, this follows on from the kind of um, ideas that Akiko was talking about just now, that if you start from the assumption that long COVID means that something has gone awry in the long term in the immune system as a consequence of having been infected with SARS-CoV-2, there are many things one could look for, many signatures one could look for in blood. One of them is this, this thing of autoimmunity, the idea that the body has started attacking itself. So if you can work out a signature of antibodies against self, autoantibodies that long COVID people tend to have in their blood that others don't, you're on the way to having a test. And so does that mean you're taking people's, you know, taking blood samples and then looking in those for specific signs of these antibodies? That's exactly what we're doing. We're working with cohorts as widely as we possibly can people who are hospitalised, people who are not hospitalised, people who didn't even manage to access a PCR test, but who now have that clear set of, of persistent long COVID symptoms. And we're looking at the array of antibodies in their blood and working out which parts of the, the human proteome, the human protein antigens they respond to, so that we can work out what that test could look like and just make something that could be accessible, that could get them that diagnosis that they need. And what have you managed to find so far? Well, so um, it's fairly early days. We're trying to expand our um, early data out further as we go, as are many other labs around the world, including um, Akiko's at Yale. And so far, we've been working um, especially with people where we've got quite a good handle on their long COVID from things like MRI analysis. And we have been finding some signatures that are reproducibly found in people with persistent symptoms that aren't found in those kind of rapid recovery people. So we feel we're well on the way to having the kind of test that we want. Do you think this kind of test, if you are looking for autoantibodies and they are causing the disease, could account for all the different kinds of long COVID that we see? Because there's such an array of symptoms. Yeah, well, you know, you know, long COVID is a very... Um, diverse and sort of scary business, isn't it, with many different possibilities. And in medicine, yes, sometimes we like to um, stratify things as much as we can and show all the differences. For the purposes of this initial analysis, we've kind of gone to the other extreme and said, let's be completely agnostic about all the different things that long COVID could be and say, if we simply put together our long COVID groups and our rapid recovery groups and our healthy control groups, are there any blood markers we can find that are useful and so far we feel like we're winning but you know I accept that down the line you may want to say well but you know could this be useful for telling the difference between a skin rash long COVID person and a brain fog long COVID person and I'm sure it could be. And you mentioned all these different groups is one of the groups you're looking at the people who are actually asymptomatic for COVID but now seem to have developed long COVID afterwards? Very much so. So, so to me, they're one of the most interesting groups, but they're also one of the most, um, you know, everybody's desperate, but they're particularly desperate, aren't they? Because if you have long COVID, you know, bear in mind, you know, this isn't obviously just a UK problem, it's a world problem. So we're talking about what, you know, something like 20 to 40 million people on the planet with long COVID, 
all trying to access care, all trying to convince their doctors they have a problem, and all trying to kind of get into that care pathway. Imagine how much harder that is if not only do you not have a diagnostic test for your long COVID, you can't even prove to them you had COVID in the first place because you were asymptomatic and you know, perhaps people in your household had it or whatever. So, you know, I'm especially interested in, in those people. And finally, if you did manage to make this kind of test, how do you think it could be used? Do you think it could be used to help predict who's most at at risk of having long COVID for a really long time? I think, you know, there are many nuances to be brought out of it. But in the first instance, I'd like it to be within that battery of tests that your doctor can order, as for other autoimmune diseases like diabetes or arthritis, where your local hospital can just do the test and say, yes, tick the box, this is long COVID, off they go to the long COVID clinic, you know, let's try and help this person and do something for them. Thank you so much. That was Danny Altman from Imperial College London. Now, while research into mechanisms and causes of long COVID do continue, thank goodness, what can we do, though, to help the thousands or, as we've just been hearing, possibly millions of people who are already affected? Well, Mark Toshner is a respiratory doctor at Royal Papworth Hospital in Cambridge. Would you judge long COVID to be being well managed or is this something of a medical wild west? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult area right now and, and I, I have a long COVID or a, or a post-COVID clinic in, in Patworth. And if I'm very honest, I don't have an awful lot to offer patients right now. And it's partly related to some of the things Akiko and Danny have spoken about. There's a lot of very exciting science going on, but it's going on, it's active right now, and it, and it hasn't drawn its conclusions. So that's really hard to then feed into clinical trials to kind of figure out which therapies might work. Well, you mentioned the clinical trials. Surely that is the linchpin, isn't it? It's trying to dissect away who's got what, when, why, and which of their syndromes is caused by what mechanism. Because we seem to have so many different balls in the air. It, it's part of the problem is that we're we're being completely overwhelmed with information and dissecting out what is going on for each person seems to be difficult. It's really challenging and, and it's an evolving space. And it, some of this can actually be dealt with by the type of trials you set up, though, so... So, for example, it's not very dissimilar to the situation when we first encountered COVID. And the best response to that was a trial called the recovery trial, where they were completely, and I think Danny used the word agnostic, and again, I'm going to follow that theme, agnostic to what, what's causing it, what the major players might be, and just have very big trials that are able to put lots of different therapies in, depending on how the evidence changes. So I think I think there are some things we can do about that but it requires a lot of funding and it requires most patients or a lot of patients to be enrolled in clinical trials to clarify what therapies work. Are you tending to approach this then as a a doctor who's saying, what symptoms have you got and what can I detect that I might be able to fix? So rather than saying, you're labelled as long COVID and I'm going to treat you as long COVID, I'm going to treat you symptomatically and try and improve your function. At the moment, that's very much the case. So it's a largely we are restricted to looking for the things we know about and excluding coexisting or, or complicating diseases that have established therapies. But for most of the patients who have residual symptoms in my clinics, I don't have anything evidence-based to offer them at the moment. What we really need now is a really huge effort in, in the clinical trial space to try to feed in some of the mechanistic work or some of the work being done on what might be causing the different parts of post-COVID or, or, or long COVID syndromes into clinical trials to get some actual answers and to make meaningful differences to patients.
But what we heard from our previous three contributors was very much that, that this is not just one syndrome. It appears to be lots of things going on and different people are affected differently. So does that mean then that just going to see one doctor who's very good at doing one type of medicine might not necessarily be the answer? Do we, do we need broader clinics with, with a wider range of, of expertise in them to try to fix people up? Yes, we almost certainly do. So th- this is not going to be solved by one doctor. It's going to be teams of both clinicians and healthcare workers. And that's what the very best services that are, that are kind of in evolution right now are, are looking to do. They're looking to draw on expertise from a, a wide variety of different areas. But again, we might find in another six months that we need to change the composition of those teams because because at the moment we still don't have absolute clarity over the proportions patients we're going to see with different problems so it very much is a, a space that needs to be dynamic well one factor that seems important for many people is, is time time to get better we heard at the beginning of the program from freya jeffcott who told us about her run-in with covid earlier on i used to have big problems with brain fog and this insane fatigue that would just make it hard to lift my limbs and i was getting ridiculously high fevers up until a few months ago and quite bad rib and joint pain and deafened by tinnitus and smelling garbage everywhere. It was really horrible. But actually, at this point, everything's bearable. And I think if it stays at this level, then I'll be able to sort of, to some degree, get on with my life, be able to do my desk job, hang out with my partners and see friends. But I think it's going to be a while before I could, say, go to the shops and carry bags. And I'm not sure if I'll be able to drive again. So presumably, you're just being confronted by people with that sort of story in these clinics, Mark. Yes, but I think I think there's also a positive part to that story, which is she is getting better. It's 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 slow and it's painful, it's frustrating, and often it comes and goes, and that is very much what we're hearing. But as a respiratory doctor, this isn't new for us. So when I see patients after pneumonias who've been admitted to hospital, quite often at three to six months, they are not back to normal. They are nowhere near back to normal. So so the underlying idea of convalescent trajectories varying is well established. It's just that in COVID, we seem to have a really big burden and a huge amount of patients who've suffered from it, as well as a kind of very dizzying variety of of potential new complications that we're having to unpick. So I think there is a positive message here, which a lot of the patients I see are getting better, and some of them are back to normal, but there's a a big rump, there's a big proportion of patients out there who still have a lot of symptoms, and and we're really going to need to put a big effort into the research space to try to clarify why and then to figure out if there's anything we can do to improve things for them. Do you have optimism, really? Are you, are you feeling that, in fact, we are funding this properly, we're addressing this properly, and it's it's actually going to, to be all right? Or are you nervous that, in fact, we're storing up trouble for tomorrow? So I'm, I'm nervous because there are so many patients out there, and, and I think funding structures are slow. There definitely needs to be more money pumped into this. I'm optimistic because... Everything in the pandemic has been turbocharged and, and research has really you know, proven its worth time and time again. And this is another scenario or another situation where research can give us the answers. It's going to be slightly more challenging because it is a complex set of different diseases yep. and it's chronic. So it's going to take us a while to get answers because by definition, we're going to have to prove that you know, treatments stick months down the line, not days or weeks. I think probably one question going through people's minds who are listening to what you're saying is going to be, well, I've got long COVID. What advice can you offer me for both the short term and the longer term? So my bias taking this is that you need to be pushing your centres 
to be enrolling and, and taking part in clinical trials because without clinical trials we won't get answers to this there are going to be a lot of snake oil salesmen and already there are colonizing this space so just be really wary of anybody who tells you they know the answer if they are pretty convinced and pretty convincing they're probably not right because there are no really good well-evidenced treatments yet and there are things that might work but this space is going to be, you know, just watch as people left, right and centre tell you that therapies X, Y and Z are absolutely going to cure your symptoms. I think time is going to be a big and important thing here. And if I was a patient, the major thing I would be, I'd be banging the door down is to see that clinical trials are actually set up and that you you get a chance to contribute to them. One thing that is certain is that time is against us and it has defeated us. We must leave it there. But Mark, thank you very much for, for telling us what you're trying to do in your clinics to help people who find themselves afflicted by the condition we've been discussing this week, long COVID. And thanks to our other contributors, Lawrence Young, Akiko Iwasaki and Danny Altman. I'm sure that we'll be returning to this subject many times in the future and hopefully... Every time we do so, we'll know a bit more. And for a complete change of direction now, Harrison Lewis has been racking his brains to help out our listener, David, with his question for our question of the week. Hello, Naked Scientists. My question is, how much of the brain is actual memory? I swear I used to be able to remember the answer to this one. I must have forgotten. Luckily, Amy Milton from the University of Cambridge has been on hand to remind me. It really depends upon how you are defining memory. When we talk about memory conversationally, for example, remembering what you did to celebrate your last birthday, we often mean a specific type of memory known as episodic memory. If we restrict ourselves to thinking about this type of memory, then we know that one particular brain region called the hippocampus is really important for storing these memories and for re-experiencing them as episodic memories essentially mentally time-travelling when they're retrieved. The combined volume of the two hippocampi on both sides of the brain is about six centimetres cubed, so this is about half a percent of total brain volume. That seems like a rather small proportion of the brain to me, but of course the story gets more complex. It turns out that episodic memory isn't isolated to one specific area. We know that episodic memory doesn't just rely on the hippocampus. Damage to other brain regions, for example parts of the thalamus, can also lead to problems in storing episodic memories. Also, retrieving episodic memories depends upon many different brain regions, which are needed to work out which memory you want to retrieve, holding it in mind and checking that it's the right one. When you retrieve a memory, it's also thought that this activates the brain regions that were involved in that experience in the first place, Right, so that includes the visual cortex for what you saw, the auditory cortex for what you heard, language processing regions for what was said. In reality, you instantaneously draw on a lot of different parts of the brain in just the simple act of retrieving that memory. And episodic memory isn't the only type of memory. You have memories for motor skills, which depend upon motor brain regions. You have memories for what objects are, what they feel like, what they look like, etc., which involves many different brain regions. You even have memories that tell you that the sound of an ice cream van is a good thing, which depends upon brain regions like the amygdala. So essentially, you could argue that almost all of the brain is involved in memory in one way or another. Thanks, Amy. I'll try to remember that this time. Next week, we'll be answering this question coming in from Martin. 
how long does it take for the food that I eat to become part of me? Dare I say food for thought there. But what do you think? You can come join the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Or if you would like to ask us a question, we're on chris at thenakedscientist.com or use the web form at thenakedscientist.com forward slash question. And there we must park it for this week. Thanks to Eva who put the whole thing together. And now it's time for you to get in touch with your questions because coming up, it's a Q&A show. You ask the questions, we supply the answers. From practical tips to avoid the insect apocalypse to plagues throughout history, we've got a panel of experts who are going to be answering. Get in touch, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Our programme comes from the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, goodbye.